this was very stressful. I don't appreciate all the stressful work Webster does. <laughs> <laughs> but I was also the weirdo in Ireland for not swearing. And people think that you're um, super posh or full of yourself. Oh, really? Yeah. So, okay. um, but then we do say shite and feck, which we don't consider to be swear words. And, and people outside of Ireland think that feck is fuck, but it's not. And they think that shit, that shite is shit, but it's not. Hello and welcome to Word Up Podcast. I'm Evie and Webster is not here with us today, but I'm with our lovely guest, Joseph. Hello. Hi, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm very excited to have you here. Good. Yes, it's been a, it's been a long time planning. We finally made it. Yeah. Yes. And we are here in your lovely office overlooking an amazing Amsterdam panorama. We do have a really beautiful view. What a pity we're on the radio. <laughs> Uh, we're just next to Central Station, very central location indeed, yeah. And you are, I heard, social media wizard here. They, that's what they called me, yes, the social media <laughs> wizard, the social media storyteller, these are the things that I do, yes. And how did you get to be here? How did I come to this job or yeah, to this country both. or to this Everything. place? How did I get to be here? <laughs> yeah. Well, once upon a time, a man called Joseph went to a uh, beauty pageant called the Rose of Tralee Festival Ooh. in County Kerry in Ireland. And there he met a woman called Jean Anne and he really liked her and she really liked him. And they continued to see each other until the point that he asked her to marry him. Oh. And so because they met at the Rose of Tralee Festival, the flowers for the wedding were roses. <gasps> so I'm here because of a beauty pageant to be called the Rose of Tralee Festival. Joseph and Jinan are my parents. Oh. And uh, <laughs> when I learned this wonderful story of union, I get a tattoo of a rose on my ankle. Oh, and wow. I know tattoo roses are the tackiest of all tattoos. And I love <laughs> my rose tattoo so much. Um, so that's how they made me, I suppose. I'm one of three boys. But then I grew up in the southwest of Ireland and um, I loved talking, as many Irish people do. And my dad is an amazing storyteller. And my whole childhood was spent listening to him tell stories as yeah. he would be driving back from work and we might be with him in the lorry or in the car. He did many different jobs and we listened to many different stories. And I suppose I learned the tradition of storytelling from my dad um, just by listening. And then... I went to university and I studied drama and uh, performance arts and then I did a master's in drama therapy and I did a second master's in journalism. So I'm very blessed and very lucky. And all along the way in Ireland, in my culture, I was very exposed to theatre and to drama and to beauty. And we really celebrate the spoken word in Ireland and we really celebrate poetry and drama. And part of our country is based on this tradition of storytelling. We have a national theatre, the yeah. Abbey Theatre in Dublin. I worked there as a, in ticket sales and as a tour guide when they were launching their tour guide programme. So I got to bring people through the National Theatre and onto the stage and tell stories about ghosts and about the formation wow. of our nation. So that was lovely. Uh, but all along the way, my brother was very fascinated with a particular green plant that is very illegal in Ireland. Mm. <laughs> and so his journey brought him to the Netherlands. And when I was in Dublin living my journey and my story, I was yeah. missing my brother and our closeness. And I was always saying to him, one day, I'll come to the Netherlands if that's okay with you. And he was always saying, please come, please yeah. come. And in 2009, 
I said, Dara, I'm going to move over. I'm going to come live with you in the Netherlands. I'm going to quit my job here in Ireland <laughs> and we're going to see what happens. And he said, okay. And he asked around to get me a job and he asked around to find me a place to, to live. And just three months before I left Ireland, I met this wonderful man who I wonder if I can name him. I'm going to give him a pseudonym just in case okay. he's uncomfortable with being included in the story. Let's call him Patrick because he's Irish. Of course. And... Uh, Patrick asked me not to move to the Netherlands and Patrick loved me and I loved Patrick. Oh. So I said, okay, do you know what? I won't. And I rang up my brother and I broke his heart. Uh, but I'd quit my job and I'd quit my um, lease. Oh, and no. suddenly I changed my plan. And so I moved in with Patrick and his parents in this oh. house in Dublin oh, wow. uh, for the rest of the summer. <laughs> and then I ended up staying in Ireland for five more years, always in the back of my head thinking, I really should have gone to the Netherlands. And now I can't re-go because I can't, you know, stir that up with my brother again. And things didn't work out with me and Patrick and life went on. And then I contacted my brother again and said, look, maybe I will come to the Netherlands this time. Do you trust me? And he's like, <laughs> of course, come, no problem. <laughs> So I came over for the summer and I'd saved up some money and I had an amazing summer and I didn't work at all for the first time in my life. And I just partied and got distracted by the distractions <laughs> of the Netherlands. And then I made some friends and I joined a rugby team and then uh, my money was running out and I was looking for work and I thought, well, I'm very hireable. I mean, I'm lovely and, <laughs> <Of course. laughs> uh, you know, I'm very likable and award winning and uh, nobody was hiring me. It was like recession and there was a gap in my CV and um, I just moved her to party for months. So why right. would anyone hire me? So I panicked and I started going into cafes and restaurants and hotels and Starbucks just here next to Central Station hired me. So at 33 years of age, I started serving coffee in Starbucks and my manager was 19 years old oh. and it was amazing. It was <laughs> I loved working in the hard, I loved working in Starbucks because it reminded me of a time that I worked in the Hard Rock Cafe in Dublin and this American globalization, standardization of service that is sweet and kind and people are really passionate about their coffee and all these young <laughs> kids that I was working with were breathing youth into me. Um, and after six months, I was like, am I going to stay in Starbucks for the rest of my life? Is this my career now? Right. Um, or am I going to try and get back into journalism and storytelling and the things I'd done in Ireland? Um, so I started applying for jobs around the city and another shop uh, was going to hire me in a sort of marketing uh, communications um, role, but within the sex industry. And I thought, oh, that's really exciting. <laughs> and so I told Starbucks that I was leaving and I was going to go work for this company and be part of their team. And I was really impressed by their commitment to like sexual expression and um, gay beauty and pride and so on. And then in a heartbeat, the job they offered me was gone. And I don't know how it disappeared, oh. but I'd already told Starbucks that I was leaving. Right. And much like my leaving in Ireland and a speed bump, it was, right. like a, it was like history repeating. And so I was too proud to tell Starbucks that this job opportunity had disappeared. Hmm. And so I just carried on into the West and found a job somewhere else in Amsterdam. And I worked in a sauna for a year. And then um, the sauna was enough for me. I made lovely friends there. I had a nice time. And I thought to myself, oh, I need to get out of services industry. So I started looking for work again. Mm. And there's this dating app called Romeo. And they advertise their jobs through the dating app. And on the very day that I wanted a new job, they advertised social media officer. Oh, and wow. I looked at the qualifications that they needed and they suited everything I'd ever done in Ireland. And it really fitted who I was before I moved to the Netherlands. But nothing I'd done in the Netherlands 
would be suitable experience for this role. So I thought, well, I'll just apply for it anyway. And it was the first time in a long time I'd applied for a grown-up job. It was the first time in a long time I had to create a CV and write about projects and critically assess myself and right. analyze my skills. And uh, so I did all of that. And I signed up for this website and I built a CV on it. And I took out a year membership because I thought I'm going to be looking for a grown-up job for a year. <laughs> and the first job I applied for was the social media officer at Romeo. And... They did a Skype interview. I had to submit written work. There was a panel. There was a process of selection. Then it was whittled down to like five candidates or three candidates. And I was brought in here for a face-to-face -face interview. And then it, I had to go back to work in the sauna and wait for their decision. And ultimately they picked me and they called me and they offered me the job. And it was wonderful. Um, and so even though I joined the, the job recruitment agency for a year, I got the very first job I applied for. It's <laughs> amazing. So wait, yeah, it's wonderful. But also, you know, in my in my brain of when I paid for a year subscription and I didn't get my <laughs> Anyway, I got the job and that is how I'm here in the seat before you today. Oh fantastic. Mm -hmm. What a story. Mm. I'm just like smiling and oh, there's like so much listening more. I like edited it down. <laughs> I know I can talk for hours, so I kept it short. <laughs> It's lovely. But um, I'm wondering, what's the most exciting part about being social media wizard? Oh, yeah. So let's get deep into that. <laughs> so I was hired here um, three years ago and I was replacing someone who was really good at his job and who had done a really great, had set a really great standard for the voice of the company and social media interaction and um, storytelling and content for the blog. Um, and so I stepped into these I stepped into these shoes that were still fairly warm from the person before me. And right. I was thinking, do I just try to repeat everything that happened before or do we move in a new direction? And so what we started doing was checking on queer culture and reading what was available online and thinking, how does that sit with our brand values or how does that... Um, help Romeo to tell its story. And so for a while, it was really wonderful. We could write about queer culture and sexual identity or also um, I'm very um, interested in the leather scene or I'm very curious about kink. And so I wrote an awful lot of kink articles. Right. And for, for a golden year, we just wrote about whatever we wanted to write about as long as we felt it fitted the values of Romeo. And then we'd communicate those stories on Twitter, on Instagram. We had Snapchat for a while, on YouTube. YouTube. So it was really fun. It was really like yeah. a, a no holds barred, unlimited creativity Fantastic. space. Yeah, yeah, it was ideal. It was ideal. And then marketing alongside social media was doing global campaigns and um, advertising. And there was a moment where we realized that social media wasn't fully supporting global mm. marketing campaigns. So we needed to bring those stories closer together. Um, and so we needed to work closer together. But then marketing completely changed direction at some point in this. But there was a moment where I was sent to the gay games in Paris to follow a water polo team and to report wow. on what they were doing, cool. which was phenomenal. There was a week where I was sent to European Gay Ski Week to go skiing and to put it on Instagram. So, you know, there was some really fine, luxury, glamour jobs <laughs> during that process of development and figuring out who we are and how we fit. And now um, we've moved it more to be 
our social media and our storytelling online needs to be reflective of where our company is going and what our company is doing. Yeah. Not so much what wonderful people are doing skiing in the middle of France <laughs> or not so much how this huge gay sporting event might be going on in Tokyo or Paris. More right. sort of what are we doing to provide an excellent service or what yeah. are we doing to make our platform accessible and safe. So it's less about looking out and it's yeah. more about communicating our story out to our audience. Okay. I would imagine always it's a lot of storytelling, but it's also very much process-oriented work, right? Yeah, we've moved. We've moved from queer culture storytelling, which is wonderful, yeah. to um, to really focusing on our brand and focusing on the service that we provide. But I suppose if we talk about our core values as, as a dating app, you know, we believe in inclusion, intolerance, acceptance, love, and um, we want men to feel that they have the freedom to mm. explore their sexuality online and to express it. Um, and so if that for you is putting up a photo of you in a fishing boat, then that's your expression and go ahead and do it. Yeah. And if that for you is a topless photo, which an, an awful lot of guys tend to like doing, then fine, that's for you too. But we don't want to limit ourselves to only being a sort of app or website where it's lots of topless photos and lots of guys looking for sex, which is great. Please come to Romeo and look for sex. But we also want it to be, maybe you're looking for friendship. Maybe you're right. traveling and you don't know anybody in Argentina and you can go on to Romeo and find a local. And because Romeo is such a lovely, friendly online community, hopefully the Romeo that you meet on there in Argentina will also be as lovely and kind as our app is. Yeah. And then in Germany, we're really very popular and a lot of people use Romeo there for um, how do I describe it social networking almost to a professional level like you oh, might wow. almost find a job through a friend on Romeo wow mm. and as a social media expert mm -hmm. I'm really curious about how do you deal with your online personality and the reality of the personalities like how do you deal with when people try to maybe look better or have more filters on pictures. Oh, we just wrote some articles about this actually quite recently. <laughs> but before we dive into that, I suppose I never feel like I'm a social media expert. Okay, uh, I sorry. Suppose, no, it's okay. Sorry, it's the first <laughs> time we're talking about it. I suppose anybody that would use the word, no, I, sh I shouldn't judge others about myself, <laughs> using the word expert suddenly closes a lot of doors to creativity and learning and mm -hmm. growth. So I suppose someone who's familiar with a bit of social media or who's interested or has a passion for it. But I always feel like I'm a student and I always feel like I'm growing. Um, and I remember I went to this amazing presentation by Vice News here in, in the Netherlands in On Brand Beyond um, where they were talking about their new way of investigating news and they put the story at the middle and then they draw a circle around it and they decide mm. will this end up on Twitter is this going on Snapchat is this going on Facebook and they experience map the direction their news story is going to go in and that means mm. on the day that they go to cover the story they already have this structure in place right. yeah. and that to me was mind-blowing and it might sound very <laughs> simple but so when we when we set about a story when we set about creating something we already know where we're going to place it or where we're not going to place mm -hmm. it and that helps me to speak to design about our needs from them and our demands on them then they can evaluate how much time they have to devote to each story and how they can work in and around their agenda so it's all very organic yeah um but back to people's perfect personas versus their real life. <laughs> yeah, let's just jump straight into the toxic nature of social media. Mm. That You know, the, the elephant in the room. Um, <laughs> and the toxic nature of um, excessive online activity in any sense, even in dating. Um, so Instagram exists and people love it. Mm. And you go on there and you take your best holiday photo. And you might have spent three days in, um, let's say, Vienna and 
instead of enjoying Vienna and eating the food and drinking the coffee and talking to the locals, you're just checking out where's my best Instagram location. <laughs> and you get a beautiful door and you think, oh, this is going to be gorgeous behind me in my selfie of my face in Vienna. Right. And you've got it and you put that up online, but then you need to get another one and another one and another one. And so you're not really on holidays in Vienna and you're just at a photo shoot that happens to be in Austria. <laughs> Essentially, uh, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people fall victim to that. And I, I myself have fallen victim to that so many times. And it's the way it's constructed and the way that social media works is that sometimes we can become removed from reality. Mm. And even though something that's created to help you make connections and to find intimacy removes it from you. And it's a bit of a paradox. So I feel like engaging with that toxicity, you need to be careful with how much time you spend online. And you need to be careful with how you see yourself. You should see yourself for real, which is very hard to do, and not see yourself mm. as that person in the doorway in Vienna <laughs> that got 6,000 likes. Um, and so then you look at your photo and you put a filter on there and the filter makes your skin better or takes away these spots that you have or hides your freckles. Or you can then doctor it to like fine details that your hair can be nicer in your version. <laughs> and I suppose that can be fun for a while, but yeah. then it can it can grow and it can get out of control and not to pick just an Instagram. I mean, it's on Snapchat. It's just how we work in the world right now with photographs online and filters. So um, one thing is to limit your time online. Another thing is just to do stuff that is in reality with people like go for a run, go for a jog, jog with a friend, go for a swim, go to the gym. I look every week at how many hours I spend on my phone because my phone tells me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm always competing with myself to get it down and get it down and get it less and get it less. But at the same time, I want to use these devices for the the gifts that they bring and the yeah. access to knowledge and the access to information. I feel as long as it's fun and you're playing with it and it's playful, it's good. Yeah. But when the moment comes that you need to check these things and you have to do these things before you go to bed or first thing in the morning yeah. or when you're out for lunch with a friend and you're not thinking about lunch and the friend and you're thinking about taking a photo <laughs> of the lunch with your friend, I think this is where we're crossing boundaries. Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Though? It's a tough one. Yeah, because it's always like, we. I mean, in a way we also do that in real life. Hence, you know, surgery... Um, any way to better yourself but there's also a limit there also the same way as it is for social media yeah well a friend told me this story recently now I haven't checked if this is true myself so just to you know, okay. validate this Disclaimer. is a story yeah. I heard from a friend <laughs> Uh, Steve Jobs God rest him did not let his own children have an iPad right because they are so addictive for the benefit of their mental health he wouldn't let them have a product that his company was making so these things are addictive and they're designed to make you depend on them mm. um, and I think um, androids are less addictive and better for your health even though people enjoy using them less yeah. so to be careful with your own mental health and to be careful with your own propensity to addiction like all human beings um, could potentially develop an unhealthy habit I know I have myself many times um, <laughs> and social media and digital devices are just part of that yeah of course so speaking about addiction mm -hmm. are there any other dangerous things in life that challenge you oh my god I have so many stories to tell you about addiction <laughs> um, I suppose we should start with uh, we were just mentioning there a moment ago my father and how wonderful he is I love my dad my dad's amazing and um, oh, he's just done so, so many great things I'm so blessed and lucky to have such a great father and he gave me his name so I'm Joseph Jr and he's Joseph Sr and um, 
throughout our lifetime, by choices I have made, mm. we have been less close. And by choices I have made recently, we have been more close. And that's Lovely. very important. Yeah. Uh, but he never distanced himself from me. He never closed off his love to me. I just couldn't find a way to speak his language as an adult because my whole life I was hiding that I was gay until I was 16 or 17. And of course, he always knew because he's my dad. And he used to call me Josephine as a child. Like there was no shock when I told him I was gay. Uh, but for me, I felt so dishonest that I was hiding who I really was from my dad and pretending to be mm. straight. And then this guilt and this fallout and this shame afterwards and thinking that he could never understand and removing myself from my family and moving far away and having less and less to do with him over the years. And then wondering, how can I speak to my dad? How can I have right. this attachment and this connection? So I remember when I lived in Dublin, I bought a car because my dad knows everything about cars. And I thought, oh, this will give us something to talk about where oh. we can have, a, a, you know, a similar interest. And so that was lovely. And then... Um, I stopped drinking when I was 27 for a year and a half or when I was 28 and that was another moment where we rekindled our friendship because my dad doesn't drink at all okay. and then when I was 30 I started drinking again and I lied to him about it and I was deceiving and this put a wedge between us but he mm. didn't put a wedge between us I did and then I tried to move to the Netherlands and didn't move to the Netherlands and then <laughs> I did move to the Netherlands and he was all the time watching on the sidelines and loving and supporting and I got here and then I suppose when I lived in Ireland, I had a support network. I had family, I had friends, I had a nice job, I had a career and identity. Mm. And when I moved here, I gave all of that up. And that was quite uh, destructive and chaotic. And I don't know why I did that. I know I wanted to live here to be close to my brother, but I came here without a plan. And for several months, I had nothing. Mm. I mean, I had my brother and I had life and I had partying, but yeah. I mean, I didn't have an identity or a signature or a friend network or much of a family network beyond myself and my brother. Um, and so then when I started working in Starbucks and I started working in the sauna, I kind of regressed to being a teenager and living mm. a teenager life and not taking very good care of myself mm. and partying quite a bit and having a kind of identity crisis as to who am I and then I fell in love with a man and myself and this man started using drugs and um, it became quite a ritual and it became very often and then the love went out of that relationship but the relationship carried on and that was not an ideal situation to be in and we were living together and it became that I was turning up for work and living for the weekends and taking drugs on the weekends to forget or not face up to my problems and not being able to call my dad because of shame and guilt and hiding and not being able to tell my brother because of shame and guilt. So it was a lot like being gay in the closet or hiding as a child, mm. but as an adult being a drug addict and an alcoholic in the closet and hiding it, even though everyone around me knew. So when I was a kid, everyone knew I was gay. I was the only one that had that secret yeah. and it was quite destructive. And when I was an adult in my 30s, I would say everyone around me knew I had a problem with alcohol, only I was keeping that secret. And um, so a moment came to a, like a crash where I really was very careless about my life and my safety. And um, there's a hospital here called the GGD, or as Dutch people would say, the GGD. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's where you go for your sexual health checkups. Right. And so as a gay guy, I, and a, a responsible enough gay guy, I would go there every three months and they ask you a series of questions. Um, how many people have you slept with? Did you use protection? Uh, what was your role, top or bottom? I think they say active or passive. And so I would always answer these questions really truthfully and very honestly. And so for the first year and a half, they could see a regular enough pattern 
Right. But then when I started to hit the bottle and started to be abusive with drugs, I still was telling the truth, but my answers changed because my behavior changed. And they could see a dramatic shift in behavior. Yeah. And the nurse noticed that I just wasn't the same person. And I don't know if that nurse knows me as an individual, but I mean from the data they had, yeah, yeah, yeah. this was a different person. And so she looked at me and she said, there's a drop-in clinic here on Thursdays. It might be interesting for you. And so I went and I looked at the poster and the poster was in Dutch and I didn't fully understand what it said, but I knew it was about drugs rehabilitation. Mm. I knew it was about sobriety or something and I knew it was in a bad place and I wanted help. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to drop in on a Thursday and we'll all sit in a circle and I'll listen to other people talk about their addiction. And I'll do this every Thursday for a few weeks. And if the moment comes mm. that I feel ready to share, then I, then I will share. So I turn up and it's not a circle. It's one-on-one -on -one assessment with a nurse and there's no choice but to speak. So it oh. was not what I was expecting at all. And it says it quite blatantly on the poster, but I just didn't know because it was in Dutch. All right. So okay. I sit down and there's a nurse there and I'm like, this is not what I was expecting. And the nurse says, what were you expecting? And I said that we would sit in a circle and that I would listen. Right. And he said, well, you can just sit here. You don't have to speak. And then I don't know if I can tell the nurse's personal story, but I, I think they disclose to everyone that they're volunteers and that they themselves have been through recovery and are in recovery. So they give you this feeling of no judgment. Right. And this was my first moment ever admitting that perhaps I had an issue. And so I think I spoke for 35 minutes without stopping from the moment that they disclosed that they were in recovery and I just got it all out on the table and all these things that I'd been hiding and all these secrets came to the surface and I just felt so much better and then again I jumped to the conclusion that I was going to come back here every Thursday and see the same nurse yeah. and build on this work and so the nurse is like okay um we're a referencing uh, service so we're going to refer you to something that can help you uh, that we think might be supportive. It's mm. like, oh, can I not just come back and see you next week? And they're like, no, I'm a volunteer. I'll be here in four weeks time, but that's oh. probably too long. Yeah. As, and I can leave notes and you can come back next week and the next person can help you. But that's not really what we do. So they were trying to be as kind and supportive as they could be. Um, but what I wanted and what they offered were very different things. So they referred me to someone else and I appreciated that referral from this nurse and I left. And then I kind of blocked it out and went back to work and did my thing. Yeah. And then a week later, I was supposed to go to this other place called Mainline, which is a really wonderful service in Amsterdam for gay guys that have a problem with drugs or sex addiction or chem sex addiction or um, gay men that are out of control and want to regain control or gay men that drink alcohol and take drugs on the weekends and are okay, but want to talk to someone. Like right. whatever your space is, you yeah. can go there. It's, it's uh, in Hugo de Grootplein or okay. Hugo de Grootplein. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> we'll so, reference that. So yeah. I'm walking down Rosengracht on a Wednesday night towards this place, my next step in my realization of my need for help. And uh, this part of my brain is trying to escape. And I'm mm. looking at cafes going, go in there and have an espresso. You don't need help. You're not an alcoholic. You're not a drug addict. Have a coffee. Your life is fine. And this other part of my brain pushing me on going, no, go speak to these people, speak to them, speak to them. So I get down to the end of the street. I get to the roundabout and this gentleman, Leon, meets me and he's so kind and he's so warm and he brings me in and I have my chat and it was a two hour meeting and there was one other guy there and he says at the start, um, Myself and this other person have spent the summer talking. So if you need more time than him tonight, he's willing to share it with you. Mm. So I sat there and I spoke for two hours solid. And wow. uh, I, it was just immediate therapy. And I got all this stuff out on the table. And this was the group 
where you're still drinking alcohol and using drugs and you just want to get back in control. And the advice that was given to me was, um, why don't you come to the fully sober group? This group might not be for you. And so I wasn't able to take that advice. And I kept coming back to the group where you do use alcohol and you do use drugs for a number of weeks. And then over time and over talking and listening and sharing, I got to a safe space where I could finally admit that I was a full on drug addict, that I was a full on alcoholic. It took like it nearly broke me to Mm. get those words out. And as soon as they were out, they were disarmed and they had no power over me and I had power over them. And that's all because of Bainline. So thank you so much, Leon. And thank you to me too for doing the work. Um, And then then um, a person there brought me to NA and AA and all these different groups. And so I went and I tried them and they were nice for a while. And then I started doing yoga and then I started doing sport. And it seemed to me like my life was back on track. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that I had a handle on this addiction thing. And one of the best pieces of advice that they gave me to anyone who might be struggling um, was to trust three people and to tell three people who I really was and to stop hiding from everyone. And so I sat down and in my head, I thought about three people that I trusted most in Amsterdam that I could open up to and that I could speak to. And so I picked them and I went to them one by one and I told them my story. And um, they all reacted very differently. Mm. One was um, almost no reaction at all. And like, okay, big deal. I'm here for you. You tell me whatever you want to tell me. Oh. You're, you're still Joe Carney. I still love you. Thank you for telling me. I'm honoured. I'm flattered. But it makes no difference to me. We'll just have ginger ale when you come over and we won't have wine. Big deal. And so that was a really lovely reaction. Mm. And then the other person said, and he's a boy, uh, he said, sister, we're in this together. I'm going nowhere. And I was like, thanks, sister. So we're <laughs> still sisters. And the other person could not handle it at all mm. and freaked out and withdrew themselves from me and backed away. And that is life and not everything works out and some people will reject you. Because some people, when you come out to people about your addiction, they're faced with their own relationship with addiction. When you tell someone that you're a little bit broken and you're trying to get better, they face up to their own cracks. So, you know, and I respect that person's honesty that they didn't pretend that they could be there for me when they really couldn't. And so that started a new chapter in me being a real Joe Carney uh, again, like I'd been at 18 or 21 (laughs) or 27. And then um, I still was keeping it a secret from my housemate. I still was keeping it a secret from my co-workers. Uh, I still was keeping it a secret from my brother, my father, blah, 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 blah. So there's all these (laughs) levels. And... My housemate works for a TV company and this TV company was looking for people to go into a reality TV show. And so at the beginning of my sobriety, when I was just getting grounded, when I was just coming off the drink and just coming off the drugs and there was light at the end of the tunnel and hope, I applied to be in a reality TV show programme. And I wrote down on the application form, I recently realised that I was very, very sick and I worked very, very hard to get back from that. And I'm so proud of it. And that's why I want to be in the show. So they brought me in for an interview. They asked what all this was about. They filmed it. I had a mini breakdown on camera. I told them my story. They loved it. They loved me. They took photographs of me. They offered me the job. And then I thought... If any journalists dig around in my background and find out that I'm an alcoholic or a drug addict, it could end up in a tabloid. It might not, but it could. And if it does, maybe people here at Romeo will read about it. And maybe people here at Romeo will think, I wish you told us before. 
I wish you'd given mm. us a chance to react. So I thought, okay, what can I do to manage the situation before it even happens? So I thought I need to come into work and I need to sit down with someone and I need to open up to them about my drug addiction and my alcoholism and just face it and see what happens. Right. So I came into work and I said to one of my dear colleagues, Kerry, that I need to speak to him privately. And he took me into a room and we sat on a sofa and I looked him in the eyes and I said, Kerry, I'm going to be in a reality TV show. I've been offered this chance. It's filming for two weeks in Spain. And he said, congratulations, that's amazing. And I was like, thanks very much. And I said, but stories might come out about me that you might not know about mm. me. And I think I should tell you now. And he was like, you could tell me whatever you want. And I said, but Kerry, it's not work related. It's not professional. It's quite personal. It's quite private. And he said, that's fine, Joe, go ahead. And so I said, okay, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict, I've been in recovery for about three months. I go to these groups, I go to these meetings. And he said, do you think you're the first alcoholic that I've ever worked with? Do you think you're the first drug addict that I've ever loved? And I was like, Kerry, thank you so much. <laughs> it was so beautiful. And so I hugged him and he said it didn't matter. And if anything came out, it would come out and just to do what was safe for me. And then he said, if you're going to go and be in Spain and there's a problem when you're filming the show, if you feel exposed or if you feel on shaky mm. ground, just call me. He's like, I'll be there for you. And this is in the moment when he is trying to make children happen in Mexico <laughs> and when he and his family are trying to grow and he's got his own life to take care of. And he offered me this love and this affection, which is a really integrated part of my recovery and one of the main reasons that I love working in Romeo so much, that we are a family and that we accept each other, um, warts and all. Um, so that was a really wonderful thing that Kerry did for me. And then uh, this company posted me the contract mm. to say, we need you to sign this to be in a reality TV show. So I took it to a place and I read it and they said they were going to own my image in perpetuity at infinitum. And so I looked at that and thought, what does that even mean? <laughs> in perpetuity at infinitum? My image? I'm going to wow. give you my image? And then they said, if you do anything that reflects poorly on the image or the values of the company, you will suffer a 10,000 euro fine payable immediately. If you tweet, give away the location when we're filming, there's a five grand fine payable immediately. If you do anything to cause the cancellation of the show, there's a one million euro fine payable immediately. Wow. So I looked at this and thought, I don't want to go to Spain and be in a show and then be bankrupt for the rest of my life because I sent some revealing tweet. I mean, I'm a drug addict and alcoholic in recovery. Like my boundaries are shaky at the best of times. So I like, I can't, I can't sign up for this. So I sent them an email to say, look, I don't know what the values of your company are. I work for a dating agency. I interview um, topless guys. I put sexy photos online. What are your core values? What What is your company mm. about? What might I do that could reflect poorly on you? And so we emailed over and back about what the conversation, what the fit was. And I, hand shaped this beautiful email that I'm so proud of <laughs> that listed every bad thing I had ever done wow. and sent it to them saying is this the kind of guy you want to sign up for your show and then the email stopped and then they rang me so they had, there's nothing in writing for proof and said <laughs> um, we have no judgments of the things that you've done and we celebrate you and we think that you're wonderful but we're just going to check how our investors feel so off they went to check with their investors and sadly their investors could not get behind the Joe Carney brand and that's fine and in reflection um, I think going to Spain for two weeks and giving up my security and my friend network mm. at this intimate moment in recovery would have been a terrible idea so in, in the long run it mm. all worked out okay I didn't get to be on TV I didn't get to be on a reality television show but I got to carry on with my sobriety and now two years later 
if I got offered a reality TV show tomorrow, I think I'm a much stronger place to do it. Would I sign away my image to perpetuity? <laughs> Would I send them the email of all my wrongdoings? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I also sent it to a friend in Ireland and her response was, to be the intern that opened that email, what a shocking and memorable day it would be for them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also kind of very black and white in that sense. Like the way I'm listening, it's kind of like... It's a reality TV that cannot handle reality. reality yeah. <laughs> but I suppose I've done some things, you know, I have lived. <laughs> I have lived. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, yeah, I suppose I feel like, though, I'm not really getting into the crux of it. I'm kind of giving you the structure of the story, but not the, the causage, you know? Mm. Like, I don't know why I'm not getting to the, the fruit of the matter. But I suppose I was drinking alcohol to forget and I was taking drugs to avoid mm. and um, I don't know how explicit I can be for your radio show you can. I was using uh, cocaine speed ecstasy weed um, all of the alcohol and uh, with all of these I felt like this could happen on a Friday Saturday or Sunday and I'd be fine in the rest of the week and I wouldn't use drugs and I'd be responsible and mm. work and I'd work really really hard and then the weekends would come and I would let it all go and really destroy myself to the point that I possibly could nearly have died several times and just didn't care just didn't care and that's when I knew I had a problem there was moments where I was thinking if I go to sleep tonight and I don't wake up tomorrow fine and that is a horrible place to be and that is when I knew I needed help but then crystal meth found me and so when I was already in a place Mm -hmm. where I thought if I don't wake up tomorrow so be it Um, And not caring how much that would hurt my father or my brother and his wife and his children or my other brother who lives here. And not thinking how much that would affect the friends that love me or the life that I've built. I'm being so selfish as to Mm. think if I don't wake up tomorrow, so be it. Like I was in a very dark place. Um, And then I found crystal meth and went to an even darker place place and for anyone who's never used it please don't use it it is incredibly addictive you can be awake for days just looking for more and looking for more and looking for more and all the other drugs that I use and the alcohol I would imagine to a certain extent you can contain them and wipe them away and I don't know if it's better or worse that you can be a functional drunk and a functional drug addict but with crystal meth I was not functional right and it's the void that you cannot fill is it? It's it's just indescribable. Like, um, it sticks to your teeth. It burns your gums. It burns your lungs. You can feel that it's poison. You can feel that it hurts you. Wow. And yet you want more. And this buzz and this high that you're constantly chasing. And then you enter into these... Um, like sex adventures where it's really not about the sex and it's mm. all about the crystal meth but you're pretending oh it's about the sex it's about this phenomenal sex which 99% of the time is dreadful disappointing unsatisfying sex like oh. it is it isn't I don't know why every weekend you take the drugs to have the sex adventure you think it's got to be great and every Monday you regret it and think it wasn't great yeah I really appreciate you speaking about this because I think people should really speak more about what happens. Oh, I think it's so important. Yeah. And this idea that drug addicts are different people that you'd never bump into. Drug addicts are people that you are on the bus with. Drug addicts are people that you work in the office with. Just it's really easy to hide for a very long time. Right. It's very damaging and it's quite prevalent. I mean, it's not only a gay man problem, but it's quite prevalent among a lot of gay guys in a lot of rich cities. Um and I, I feel like there's books coming out about it. There's newspaper articles about it coming out about it. And there is visibility. But we need to 
kind of dispel shame and just admit, oh, I shouldn't say we or you. It's one of the teachings of Christian <laughs> myth addiction recovery. I feel um, that I need to talk about what I've done and to be honest about it. And hopefully people listening that feel they want to reduce what they're doing will go and speak to a doctor or a nurse and not fear shame or judgment and just see that there's help and love and support out there and there's a way back. Yeah. And no matter how bad it is, and no matter what dreadful things you think you've done that no one else has done, I have done them. Don't worry. And I'm back and I'm better. And there's really no low you can go to that is unforgivable. So just forgive yourself and look for help. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And we're going to edit that out because... <laughs> I'm drinking bubbly water. It's not a drug, I promise. It's <laughs> mm -hmm. intense. Oh. Yeah. I suppose, but also I'm a newbie. I mean, I'm only coming up to, it'll be two years on the 1st of January. Um, oh, that's another thing. Gosh, how much time do we have? Oh, we have all the time. Let's talk about love. <laughs> I work in a dating agency and we hope to help people find friendship and we hope to help people find love and we hope to help people find a life and identity and I myself am always seeking love and looking for friendship and looking for connection and two years mm. ago in December um, I met this man called I'm sure I can use his name I'm sure he won't mind I met this man called Barnaby and just by his name I was in love with wow. him <laughs> and um, we dated and had an intense connection and it was really Phenomenal and mind-blowing and um, he was quite impressed that I wasn't drinking alcohol but at the time I'd given up alcohol and thought I could still do recreational drugs and uh, no I'd given up drugs as well I met him I'd given up alcohol and drugs and he was impressed by it mm -hmm. and I was impressive and it was good and then Christmas came and he went to uh, Berlin for New Year's and I was here mm. and I decided to go to a house party with strangers and drink no and just take drugs I didn't use alcohol and use drugs till four in the morning and then I was thinking I'm dancing in a stranger's living room at four in the morning on New Year's Eve not with friends not with family not with Barnaby why am I doing mm. any of this and so I left that house and I got back to my house and and I woke up in the morning of the first of January and decided that's it I am fully fully sober now I'd experimented with being sober and I'd been to groups and this is post the talk with the nurse and this is post mainline this is me waking up at the 1st of January thinking that's it I am now sober and fully committing to sobriety so Barnaby the love of my life who I'd met two weeks mm. earlier came back from Berlin mm. and I met him and I said I can't go on a love adventure with you and work on myself and being sober. They can't happen at the same time. And I need to work on myself and be sober. So this has to stop. And he was so respectful and so mindful. And he gave me the space that I needed. And he gave me the love that I needed. I fully, truly believe in that really short time of two and a half weeks that we loved each other. And it was beautiful. I know it's so short and so silly, mm. but I believe it. And a year later in my sobriety, we met again just for him to check on me to see how I was doing. And a year later, he checked on me again. So he's a, he's a good one. He's a good soul. Wow. Very respectful of my boundaries and my need for space and just checking on me because that connection was intense. But it was very hard for me to choose between myself or this love relationship and I had to choose myself and in the long run it was the right decision but why did I mention that in love oh yes so now after <laughs> after two years of sobriety nearly and no drugs and no alcohol um, I ended up going back to meetings I'd stopped them I'd done yoga I'd done sports yeah. and then through the jigs and the reels as we say in Ireland I ended up going back to meetings just for extra support and um, one meeting a uh, conversation came up about sex and love addiction anonymous, mm. S-L-A-A. 
And I thought, oh, that sounds like me. And mm. I went on their website and they have a list of 40 questions. Um, do you ever feel like you have to have sex? Um, do you ever feel like you need to do what someone else is telling you rather than do what you want to do? Um, um, have you ever... Like, the, I, I don't want to misquote them, but basically they kind of describe my personality in about 30 out of the 40 questions. Oh, wow. And so I thought I was going to get a score at the end that would say, you need to come to our group, but you don't. It's just 40 questions and you think about them. It's so reflective. Yeah. yeah. So I thought about them and I went to a group and I sat down and I listened to everyone's story and I shared mine and I felt like I was going home. Like, it was just such a good fit for me. Way better than alcohol or um, drugs, sex and love addiction was my true addiction is my true addiction and so my abuse of drugs and my abuse of alcohol were expressions mm. of my sex and love addiction which is my core and it took me two years of denial to work through in this sobriety to admit it to myself and to right. feel like this is the actual problem and that made me realize that no matter how well I'm doing or how good I am I can always find out a new chapter or reveal a new layer and so I don't really know um, yeah. who I'll be two years from now or four years from now but I know that I'm happy and that I'm in a good place and I know that I have these support networks and it's all wonderful and I didn't have the esteem to admit that I was a sex and love addict and I felt I needed to be a drug addict or an alcoholic because those were familiar to me and those yeah. were things I could express and sex and love addiction it just seems so abstract and theoretical right and, yeah, yeah and it's like you're looking for problems it's love it's sex it's yeah, good yeah, right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm there now I'm only new in this group it's uh maybe six weeks in and from going to them I feel like I am working on the true core of the problem mm. I don't know I'm listening to you and I'm The quote from Ram Das is coming to my mind, which is, we're only here on this earth to walk each other home. Oh, that's so beautiful. And it's really like, it's also like how you help yourself, but also how the world supports you as well. Like, But it's a constant journey, right? It's a yeah. constant discovery yeah. and failure and getting up and walking further. Yeah, and... Um Uh, that's one of the beautiful things about um, the British society is uh, when people die, they say that God called him home. Mm. And I think that's such a beautiful expression for describing death. And my father is a grave digger. And so <laughs> death is part of our family and it's part of a business that we're in. So we think about death probably more than the average family. Yeah. And my mother died when I was 21. And when I thought that God called her home, I thought how beautiful because she loved God and really believed in Jesus and Mary and all of that. And I don't have that faith, um, sadly, that my mother had. But it's a nice connection to think that she's home. Yeah. And then um, in, in recovery and in 12 steps, there's this, there is talk of providing community and attachment and home and care. So mm. I think it is, I think all of recovery for me, I can't say for other people, is about connecting to the world as your honest self and making the world a sort of family um, yeah. and, and and bringing your real family into that connection. Yeah. Mm. So it's authenticity and connection yeah. in that way. And I, but I share a lot of my recovery story on my Facebook. And so my family in Ireland see that. And I, you get these coins sometimes when you're, when you're in recovery oh, as yeah. a marker of, of achievement yeah. over time. And I put those up on my Instagram or on my Facebook. And it's made my aunties come forward and like things on my pages. <laughs> and it's made, it's, you know, my brother who lives in Ireland calls me occasionally, uh, texts me. So I am my true authentic self on my social media, of which we talked about yeah. earlier about the fakeness of it. <laughs> um, and I think that might be confronting for people. And I think people might don't want to see it there. And that's where I put it because I, yeah. I feel like it's the true me. Yeah, but it's it's only fair, I think. If you're brave enough to speak about it, why not post about it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. 
Okay. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming and listening to an Irishman talk about himself for I'm an hour. I'm so inspired by you. <laughs> I think you're an amazing and brave person. And I wish you a lot of new discoveries and gentle transitions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Where can people find you? Well, I suppose there's a few things I'd like to mention about that very briefly, very quickly. <laughs> if anybody out there is in um, crisis with addiction or if anybody is worried about their abusive relationship to alcohol or drugs or sex or love, please, please, please know that help is there and help is never far away. And you can just Google S-L-A-A and you'll find a meeting in your area. Um, you can go and speak to your doctor. I swear to you, they will not judge you and they will love you and they will refer you to your nearest AA or NA. Or if all of those 12-step programs seem not the fit for you, still speak to a doctor or a nurse and they can find some kind of counselling, therapy, help or support for you. And if you're in the Netherlands and live in Amsterdam, I would strongly recommend going to Mainline as a gay guy with a drug problem or a sex um, issue and oh to find find me yeah <laughs> you can find me on twitter i'm hilarious i have really witty tweets that's the best way to get in touch with me at <laughs> jt carney so that's j for joseph t for thomas and k is oh you, you're going to put it on the website yeah, anyway, k-e-a-r-n-e-y super thank you so much thank you so much for listening you can find previous episodes, information about the guests and transcripts of previous episodes and this current episode on www.wordapodcast.com. Yay! <laughs>